Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student, and in this particular episode, a more effective test taker as well. Now, a little while ago, I put a video on my YouTube channel that tackled the question of whether or not you should change your answers on test questions where you aren't confident in your initial answer. And while the initial conclusion that changing your answers is usually a better idea than sticking with your gut is still correct, there's actually some new research that reveals an even better method of dealing with questions that you're not confident about. So on today's episode, I'm talking with Justin Couchman, who's an assistant professor of psychology at Albright College. And in this conversation, you'll get an overview of the new research on test taking he conducted and find out how you can use it to become a better test taker. Justin also wrote an excellent article on his research, and I'll link to that in the show notes, which you can find by going to CIGpodcast.com. Find the episode 78 link on the page, and there you'll find the summary for this episode, links to things we talked about, including that paper, and ways you can subscribe to the show, and also leave a rating and review if you want to help support it. So that's all I got for this intro. Let's get into the interview. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks. Great to be here. <laughs> yeah, great to have you on. So, I mean, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how uh, I made a video about changing answers on tests and why usually it's a bad idea to stick with your first impression. And then uh, my friend Andrew sent me an article that you wrote. I think it was the one that got republished on QZ about how you did some extra research into what's called metacognition. So right. essentially what, what I realized is there's now research that made my video sort of wrong. No. <laughs> well, I think it's yeah. We're just it's like any science. You're building on previous stuff, and so you're not wrong. It's just now there's new stuff. And so right. <laughs> so I feel it is my duty as a broadcaster. I don't really know what to call myself anymore. To have you on the show and kind of tell people what the new science is, essentially. Yeah. So um, as you said correctly in your video, uh, there's some research showing uh, that changing answers often results in a correct. Final outcome. So mm. people think that they shouldn't change their answer, but oftentimes when you actually look at their answer changes, um, it turns out to be a good idea, which is weird uh, because why would that? Why would you do something and think that it's true, and then it turns out objectively you're wrong time and time again? Yeah. Uh, and so it has to do with, as you mentioned in your video, lots of um, cognitive biases. You have a bias to stick with your original answer because you feel you feel bad if you have the thing and then you lose it. You know, it's just, and you remember those times that you had it and you lost it and you forget Hmm. all the times that you changed and it was a good idea because that's just another correct answer on the test. Whereas, you know, everyone you get wrong, then you're kicking yourself and you're all mad. Um, Yeah. I'd actually like to kind of analyze that a little bit. So in your paper, you called it the endowment bias, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, So oh yeah. The things that you have, you're more, you biased towards the things that you already have. So I read a book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Maybe you've read it yeah, too? Yeah, that's, uh, that's who came up with that, uh, Kahneman, Tversky. Oh, okay. Um, and they, they came up with these uh, heuristics in behavioral economics, basically, but mm-hmm. it's in psychology too. Um, all the fields kind of overlap. Uh, 
Okay, so what I what I took from it, and I, I didn't finish the book yet, um, but what I took from what I've read so far is he talks about system one and system two, system one being the part of your brain that sort of takes scant details about a situation and sort of uh, manufactures a, a whole picture around it. And that's why the first impressions become so well ingrained because your brain has sort of like formed a overall picture from those small details. Is that kind of the gist of the endowment bias or is there more to it? Right, right. It's basically just um, like all those sort of, we call them heuristics in psychology, but it's it's a good way of doing things uh, quickly without having to think about it too much. Because of course, the more you think about it, that's all mental energy, which is real energy. And, you know, evolutionarily, um, you don't want to spend too much time and energy worrying about some problem if you could solve it in a quick way. Mm. Um, and so usually it's kind of fine. I mean, it's nice to have the things that you already have, and it's nice to not want to give them up and lose them. Um, and only occasionally does it come up to be a problem when you actually you should go with something else and you actually should uh, get rid of what you have and switch to, the, to a new thing. Right. Um, probably the most interesting example of it is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Monty Hall problem. Yeah, um, it's the one yeah. with the, uh, the three doors and the donkeys, right? Right, right. That's just another another good one where um, you ought, the, the gist of it is you ought to switch your answer um, every single time you have a better, you have, you know, um, better odds objectively if you switch your answer, but no one wants to switch because they're just, uh, so happy, you know, they don't want to, they're so not happy, but just like endowed really just so into the answer that they have, they don't want to give it up and lose it. Mm. You know? And in some ways it's almost better in like, you know, in terms of the story you tell about yourself to say that, oh, well, I just lost because I didn't, you know, I didn't pick right. Than it is to say, oh, I had the thing in my hand and then I gave it up. And that's that's worse somehow. Yeah, definitely. It's that loss aversion. You know, I've gone right, through yeah. the Wikipedia page for the Monty Hall problem a couple of times and I still feel like my brain knows why <laughs> you should switch, but it kind of like wants to reject it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, uh, yeah, objectively, it's not. It's There's a three doors, so there's a 33% chance that you get the answer that you pick right, you know. Mm. Um, and then they show you one wrong answer, the one that you didn't pick. And they say, you know, you have, there's the one that you picked and then there's two you didn't pick. And so they take one of the ones that you didn't pick and they show it to you and it's obviously not the right answer. So now there's two left. And so now if you stay with your original answer, you still have a 33% chance of getting it correct. But right. if you pick a new one, now it's 50, 50. And so you actually have a 50% chance okay. of getting it correct. And so it's based on some slightly more complicated things basically obviously the person who's showing you the door knows what the answers are and that's what changes the probability mm. but basically it's i mean the easy way to think about it is it's 33 versus 50 percent chance correct obviously 50 is better uh but again you don't think about that you don't you know because you already have the one choice you know right so, so is it kind of bound up in the details of the phrasing of the problem or the fact that the host knows the details uh, it is it is dependent on the fact that the host knows the details because okay. that's um, someone knows behind the scenes because otherwise I mean obviously it wouldn't work if otherwise because sometimes then they would show you the right answer and then that's that, would, true. that would just ruin the game. Um, but yeah, even <clears throat> yeah, it has to be just for weird probabilistic reasons. It has to be the case that he knows the answer. So it is, is it essentially the fact that initially you were presented with a set of three and then by him showing you the wrong answer and in letting you re-choose you are now choosing from a set of two right right so now it's 50 50 but if you stay yep. with the original answer you're essentially staying with that initial set yeah yeah and it's actually a similar thing in when you're taking an exam um although slightly more complicated as everything is in the real world versus just this kind of you know thought experiment here but initially if you have say four choices on a multiple choice exam generally you narrow it down to a few right to increase your odds mm. 
Um, and then if you if you pick one and then later you're going back to revise your answers, usually you're revising it between one choice and the other choice that you were going to um, that you might have thought at the time or that you're thinking now could be possibly correct. And so then you've got a slightly better chance after, you know, because there's only two instead of four. Um, right. Although, again, it's not quite as beautiful math wise because <laughs> generally you narrow them down anyway, because a few choices are irrelevant on the, you know, and you know, they're not correct. Mm-hmm. And in some questions, you yeah. I, I guess it's difficult because in some questions, you're not sure that some of the choices you've narrowed down are actually not true. Right. Like that's I remember another, being yeah, in exams probably, where like yeah. all four of these could be correct. And it's like, which one's the most correct? <laughs> right. That's what I usually do. Yeah. When I make exams for my students, it's, you know, they're all somewhat possible. Mm-hmm. You got to pick the one that's the best. And so some of your students are mad. They're just like, why can't you like put Power Rangers as one of the answers or something? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you throw in a funny one. That way they, you know, they I remember I was. Good. I was in a I was in a like a computer history class basically and one of the questions was like what was the first Intel processor and the answers were like eighty eight oh eight eighty oh eight like eight zero 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 and like it was just like rearranging the numbers and it was like a super broad overview class so it can be really hard to memorize those things sometimes. Right, yeah, I try not to do that because we do know about human memory. <laughs> like it's very easy to to mess up those things and mm. Even if you know the answer, you might not have it perfectly verbatim correct. It's really hard to remember things verbatim. It's it's easier to remember just the gist of it or the basic idea or, you know, yeah. in the re- like you'd go out in the real world and if you saw whatever, was it 1088 or 8088? I don't whatever, remember the whatever actual the answer name. Is. See, it's been yeah. years, so. <laughs> but if you saw that memory. one, you'd say, oh, yes, right, that's that's the first one. And mm-hmm. there's not going to be, you know, a two similar named things next to each other that you have to pick from. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the things that kind of frustrates me when I'm when I'm making content for to help students with exams, because I know that on one hand, like there are things uh, students can do to perform better, but it's Mm -hmm. also somewhat bound up in how the teacher creates the exam. Yeah, I know. Always students usually have it's much more stressful the first exam of a class because Mm -hmm. they don't know what what everything's going to be like. Uh, But then afterwards, they can kind of get the gist of all right. This is, you know. This is something the professor does, and this is. And actually, I when I do experiments on this stuff, I never look at the first or usually even the second exam. It's always the third or fourth exams that we run experiments on mm. because the first one is kind of you know it's all up in the air and people don't know what to expect. And I mean, it be, could be an e- interesting thing to look at on its own, but it yeah. would throw off the rest of the experiment because they're not used to it and they don't know what's going on, and it can be a problem. Well, that would be the subject of some interesting research itself because a lot of times the first and second exam in a class are weighted the same as you know, third and fourth exams. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and so how does that actually expect that, that they, you'll do worse at first and then you do better as you go on. And, mm-hmm. then, and then sometimes there'll be extra credit at the end of the class or something. And so that can make up for those first couple of, couple of exams. That is and, interesting. Uh, a lot of professors like to see improvement. Um, and they'll say it, you know, more or less either they'll either formally weight it or they'll just kind of informally tell you that they like to see they'll count it or somehow take it in consideration if you've improved over the few exams. So is that a consideration that you have to think about when you're designing initial exams for your students? Oh, you mean like the first exam in a course? Yeah. Uh, No, usually make it just just as hard. That way they, you know, they sort of, not to say it in a mean way, but they sort of wake up and go, oh, yes, this is going to be difficult. And then (laughs) they take it seriously for the next few exams. Because we made the first one too easy. Then you just say, oh, then the next one they're going to expect it easy. And then the next one easy. So you have to set the expectation and just sort of like let them go through trial by fire initially. There's right, really right. But then they're it. somewhat in a safe, you know, environment because we know that's going to happen. And so it's, you know, mm-hmm. we're aware of the whole thing. I assume most professors are aware of that. And they, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So 
I mean, we had the initial advice that, you know, with all the research that had been done up until this point, if you think you need to change an answer probabilistically, you should do it. And Right. So that was the old yeah, way of thinking about it. And there's been several analyses showing basically looking only at changes. So going yeah. through people's exams after the fact and just saying there was the Kruger eraser study um, that you cited uh, showing after the fact, if you go through and look at it, most changes tend to be from incorrect to correct, mm-hmm. which is fine, uh, of course. But when you're looking at it that way, it's you know, it could be changed for any reason. I mean, there's no, no, you could have just picked the wrong answer on accident or filled in the wrong bubble um, or a million different things. Yeah. But they found, I think Kruger found it was 51% and other people have found upward like 60, 65%-ish. Um, cha- answers go from incorrect to correct. So generally it's, you know, a good thing on a sort of overall objective scale. Yeah. Uh, but what we wanted to look at was um, basically when is this a good idea? Is it always a good idea? Because obviously it can't be true. Even if it's only 51%, that means 49% of the time, maybe it's not a good idea. Right. So, um, you, gotta, <laughs> you have to know when, right? I mean, 50% is okay odds, but it's not great. Um, and so we, uh, what we did is have students go through, um, we added a metacognitive component. So metacognition is thinking about thinking, kind of being mm-hmm. aware of your own thoughts. And so what we did is basically have them go through and for each question on the exam, rate their confidence in their answer. Um, and so we did it okay. one time, we did it just high or low, basically high confidence, low confidence. But now we do it more, slightly more sophisticated, just one through five. So one being very low confidence in this question, five being, you know, I'm, I'm almost positive that I got have it correct. Um, mm. And when they go through and do that, they rate their confidence and then they circle the answer. And so they have right in front of them on the test, not only their original answer, but also kind of how confident they were in their original answer. Um, and that way, when they and they go through the whole test doing that, and that way, when they go back and revise, they have not only their original answer, which again we talked about endowment bias, their their sort of bias towards, but they also have this other cue from the from the moment that they made that decision, telling them how confident they were, and that can help correct against that endowment bias some because if you only have your original answer, you've completely forgotten your confidence because you know question three. By the time you get to question you know thirty five. You have no idea how confident you are on question three. It's you know it's just completely out of your mind, um, and so now you go back and you say, "Oh, here I am in this, this question, and I circled that answer, but I only rated it a two out of five correct, you know, confident wise, confidence wise." And so maybe it's a good idea that I look and and change that answer because I obviously wasn't sure about it at the time. Whereas if it's four or five, out, you know, um, out of five correct confidence wise. Um, then maybe you shouldn't change that because you were obviously very confident in it at the mm. time. And so it might prevent you from second-guessing yourself when it's a bad idea, but help you to second-guess yourself or change your, revise your answer when actually it might be, be useful to you. Yeah. So you did two studies on this. And the first one, you said it was just rating high and low. Right. So right. in that one, it turned out when students changed their answers, they were more often than not correct by changing them. And then the next right, study where right. you had them rated one to five, the students who stuck with their initial answers were more often correct, right? Uh, right. And so we, in that one, we just, we kind of separated them out. We only did, we did one where we we're just tracking revisions, one where we we're just tracking, sticking with your original answer just to make it again, kind of pure for, for a science experiment mm-hmm. in the real world. Of course you do both all the time. Um, but in the first one we looked at, uh, just, yeah, we rated just high and low. So basically high confidence and low confidence. Um, we had them rate G's and K's. So G meaning guess, K meaning no. And just so it's very intuitive. Um, and we found that, yeah, so it was a good idea um, overall to change, to revise your original answer. Uh, we found that the ones rated low confidence were more likely to be revised 
they were more likely to benefit from revisions, and so they were, those were the ones most likely to go from incorrect to correct, um, whereas it wasn't as true for the ones that they knew. Well, I guess it's, it's obvious now, because yeah. <laughs> we figured it out. Um, and that suggests to us right, that this is a good kind of system, that you should keep track of, of high and low confidence and see if you can let that guide you. Um, and so then for the next one, we did the same thing um, with one through five confidence. And again, it was all very similar. The things that were rated, people were very, very good at this in the moment. Um, the things that were rated a one were very low percent correct. Two, a little bit higher. Three, a little bit higher. Four, a little bit higher. Five, a little bit higher. Um, and so they were very good at sort of predicting how well they were going to do on that question, uh, which is, suggests, again, that this is a very good guide um, for that for that kind of behavior. And of course, you can run all kinds of statistical tests to show that they did that it went went along well, and it and it did. Um, and then we also kept track in that one, yeah, as you said, of sticking with your original answer. And indeed, we found that if you let that system guide you in that way, you use the one through fives um, to guide you, then you can find the ones that you're supposed to stick with, and those were more correct um, than incorrect. Hmm. So, so, it's, oh, so if it were you, um, so I would guess you would you would you would encourage using at least one of these systems going forward like if you're a student taking the test right right probably it's better to use the one through five system because we found it's a okay. little bit more um you know sensitive to changes the, the reason we just did the first the two high low confidence system was just because um it was a little bit more intuitive and we didn't know if it was going to work the first time so just make it simple the first time but now we've done several tests that we haven't published yet but they're all using the one through five system okay and people see over and over again people are are very good at that yeah, and that yeah. was going to be my next question, like which system should people use? So I guess yeah. there's the big takeaway in this podcast. If you have your exam coming up, put one through five next to your questions and judge your confidence levels. Right, and it only takes a second. I mean, we've we've actually done some uh, just uh, sort of just to check ourselves type test, and it doesn't take any, it doesn't take away anything. It doesn't make people, you know, more distracted or anything like that. It doesn't take any extra time, really. Uh, and so it's just, you know, and you because you know perfectly, it's not a hard thing to think about. Hmm. You know perfectly well when you answer a question how confident you are in it. Um, and of course, if you're doing it on your own, if you want to make it, you know, 1.5 because you're in between, who cares? Just make it whatever you want um, as long as it's something that's going to guide your confidence, you know, when you go back and, and look over your test. Cool. So just rate your confidence. I feel like I should make a video on this. <laughs> it's like a quick like follow up, like, hey, do this and <laughs> you'll do better. It could be, yeah, it could be interesting. I mean, we found that people, um, again, we're doing some tests to see how well uh, it, it helps people and it does seem to help a little bit. Again, it's not going to, I mean, metacognition is being aware of your own confidence and everything. It's not going to give you extra answers. I mean, it's not right. going to instill knowledge of the exam that you don't have already. Uh, but it will, it does make you help, help you make slightly better decisions. Mm -hmm. And that can be, that can be the difference between a couple points on a test, you know, a half a letter grade, a letter grade, whatever is, you know, um, right. depending on, depending on your personal, uh, ability to revise and everything. Yeah. So yeah, make a nice difference is meaningful to students. You know, that's usually good. It helps you analyze the quality of your own body of knowledge, but it won't right. augment that body of knowledge. It won't add yeah. more to it. Right. No one's gonna be <laughs> no one's gonna walk into the test and they're gonna you know, they otherwise would fail, but now they're gonna do really well. I mm. mean it's just you know, if you don't know anything about the exam, you're not gonna do well. But if you do know things, you're <laughs> gonna be a little bit a little bit better. Right. I've done a lot of reading on just how to be a more rational thinker. And mm -hmm. one of the main themes was just having it in your mind to always notice when you're confused about something or when something in the, that you observe in the world doesn't really match up to how you expect it to happen and uh, pausing and like noticing that. I think this is kind of a variation of that, like noticing when you aren't confident on an answer or when you are and then 
updating your decisions based on that. Right. That's sort of, um, it sounds sort of like mindfulness, um, which is a big thing now in psychology. Uh, I had a student once looking at this kind of issue of, of being mindful, being able to be aware of, yeah, when you're confused. Most of the research we do in, um, or that I've done in metacognition is being aware of your own uncertainty, right? Mm. Obviously, you have lots of feelings, you can be aware of all of them, um, but uncertainty is one of the more profound ones that we can really measure. And again, one that seems to really help you when you're making decisions, because what's better to know than, than your own level of certainty um, while, you're, while you're trying to do something? And I think it's good for, yeah, all decisions. If you could kind of, it's harder to record in the real world, but if you could record, you know, just how confident you were um, at different times, then it's, it could be a good guide. Because again, it's the kind of thing, that's another um, Kahneman and Tversky thinking fast, thinking slow bias is that uh, you, as you go along, uh, every new kind of memory or experience you have overwrites or, or pushes away, you know, gets rid of the old ones. And so you very quickly forget your confidence and you forget a lot of aspects of your decision. And then mm. if you had a little cue to remember them, you might be a little bit more rational. So is that why when you asked students how they thought they did on the overall exam, they were not able to accurately guess because it's only right. in the moment you can judge one decision? Right. And so yeah, afterwards, when you're at the very end of the exam, we ask them to rate, you know, just how well you did on the same scales, um, one through five scale, and then also on the just zero to 100 kind of, you know, estimate your grade in this exam. And I've done that several times too. And usually students are just uh, totally wrong about that, uh, which is, it's weird because you not only did you just go through and take every question, you also rated every question. And so you'd think somehow in your mind, you could just average, you know, the, all your ratings together and you have a pretty accurate estimate. Uh, but you don't, because again, it's, it's a similar kind of bias where it takes a lot of mental effort to go through and think about every question and kind of average in your mind mentally all the all the ratings that you gave, mm. which we know are very accurate predictors of performance. That's it's very hard. I mean, you're not going to do that because it just you know it's does not fun and it takes a lot of energy. Um, and so again, you just base it on just whatever is most available to you in the moment. Maybe it's based on the last couple questions. Maybe it's just based on your feeling of being done with the exam. I mean, anything could be, could come into it. And usually it's just not very accurate, which is a problem because that's what most people have every day. That's you walk out of the exam, you say, how'd you do? And that's, <laughs> that's what, that's what you're basing it on. It's just this last overall estimate that we know is not very accurate. Mm. Uh, and you're not basing it on all the things that you did during the exam, which we know are accurate. And I can remember several times where I said, oh, man, I feel like I bombed that exam and then I do amazingly or the opposite. Right. Like I rock that one. Nope. C minus. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it can be for any number of uh, that kind of stuff happens for any number of, of reasons. As I said lots of different cues come into it. If you get the last couple of questions right, maybe you go, oh, that was, you know, fairly easy. Right. I'm feeling confident now. And you forget the, you know, question 17 or something where you're just mm. bombing it. Um, and, it, and it can be based on, you know, all kinds of other stuff as well. And so it's very, you know, very complicated. So I want, did you guys happen to average or to like to take the average of all the one to five ratings on some of this exam and then correlate that to the actual exam score? Yeah, that's basically what we did. So we, um, it's, uh, it's a thing that's, it's called gamma correlations. It's slightly more complicated than a normal correlation. Um, but basically it's seeing if people are, um, using that one through five system in a way that accurately corresponds to and accurately, accurately predicts what their grade is going to be. Um, and so, and yeah, every time it's, you know, they're very, uh, significant kind of statistically significant relationships there. And so suggesting that it was, you know, there's a good, good correlation basically. Okay. So if you want to know what you're going to get an exam before you get the score back, mm -hmm. add up all of your ratings and then get the average and kind of like correlate uh, that to a hundred point scale. 
Right, right. You can kind of do that. That might be a little bit, I mean, that's another one of those things that's kind of hard to do, right? Because you're at the end of the exam and you're tired, yeah. probably not going to add up 40 or 60 numbers or something or 100, however many questions you have on, you know, get your mm -hmm. calculator out and uh, add them all up because that's kind of, and then it's at one through five too. And we found there's some, like, uh, it can be weird to translate the one through five scale to the zero to 100 scale to predict your grade. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I mean, we know it does, but it takes a little bit more complicated statistics than just adding it up real quick and, and averaging it, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, so but, if you got, but if you took it, you know, <laughs> I was going to say, if you took it and you had that as like a one through five rating, that would be a pretty accurate predictor of your performance. It would just be a little bit non-intuitive to sort of compare to your final grade. Okay. So you can't be like, oh, I got a 4.2, therefore 82%, but you can kind of at least be like, ah, it's probably a good B range. Right, right. Because some people, it depends on how you, um, some people are biased against giving too many low ratings. Like they, you know, uh, so like a one doesn't correspond to um, 20% or whatever accuracy on the exam because most people take a one to be like, you know, close to zero. Or oh, like zero. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so it can be kind of weird for that. But again, um, I don't know, rest assured, statistically, we know that it does correspond <laughs> and it'll be a good, good predictor, even if it's not super easy at the end to kind of, uh, uh, intuitively pick it up like that okay so i'm interested to hear about your research on the rhesus monkeys with metacognition because yes. you mentioned that they naturally conduct metacognitive tests on their decisions uh yeah so what we did with them was basically a simpler version of this this uh kind of these kinds of tests um they would see a stimulus in front of them they were all trained to work on computers and they still are these they run at uh, georgia state university mm. um and they are trained to use a joystick to make different responses on a computer, just basically little computer games. And we, a little bit more complicated because they're experiments, but um, we show them a stimulus, and then they, they learn to make uh, one of two what we call primary responses. So it could be even like the simplest thing, we show them a line, and the line could be shorter or longer, any kind of thing. And they learn that some lines should be called the long line, and some should be called the short line, and they kind of learn in their minds what the border is between the two, the two things. And they do very well um, making those simple sort of responses. And they get a reward if they call it, if they do it correctly. They say, oh, that's a long line. And they actually make the long response. If they, it's short and they make a short response, they get a little uh, reward, which they really like. If they get one wrong, they get a penalty timeout, which is not, nothing bad happens to them. But they just have to sit there for a few minutes and not keep playing our, our thing, mm. which is, you know, it's a little penalty. It's nothing, again, nothing horrible. They're very happy doing it. Um, uh, but then... You can make so you can make them very easy, right? So if a really long line, you say, oh, it's long. It's really short, you say it's short. But we can put it also sort of right in the middle where it's not, you know, it's right on their border of what long and short should be. And it's not clear right, which, which response they should give. Um, and in those cases, they can make a third type of response, which we call the uncertainty response, uh, which just allows them to basically skip that question. It's kind of the equivalent of saying, I don't know. Um, they don't get a reward, but they also don't get a penalty. And so it's not, I mean, it's not really beneficial to do this in any way because it doesn't get you anything, but it, it does let you escape from a thing that you know you're going to get wrong. Mm. And what we find is when we give them these really hard trials that we know are hard, they're objectively hard, and you can even measure like the psychological, what's going on in the mind of the monkey, and we know that that's their hard point. Um, and when we give them those, they make more uncertainty responses. They tell us that they don't know at exactly the point when they actually don't know, and when we objectively, they don't know the answer. And so... We take that to mean that they really understand their own thoughts to some degree. They're monitoring themselves or saying, oh, this is a difficult one or this is one that I'm not going to get right. And so I should make the uncertainty response instead of, you know, guessing a primary response. 
Um, and they, they, in all kinds of tasks, they've done that um, very, very well. Uh, so all kinds of stimuli, lines, circles, uh, different kinds of brightness, uh, discriminations, all kinds of memory tasks, all kinds of things. Um, they consistently kind of are able to make that sort of that sort of behavior. Okay. So when I read your paper, I guess I, I read that they were doing that and students are not doing it so well. And I kind of wondered, oh, are rhesus monkeys just somehow better at metacognition than humans <laughs> are? But it seems like what it actually is the case is the test is designed in such a way that they're allowed to say, I don't know, that's an option. And in the tests that students are taking, that's not an option. You have to answer, so we have to guess. Like, you can't just say, I don't know this question, I'm going to skip it. Right, exactly. I don't think the monkeys are better at it. In fact, it's, it's sort of the opposite. We're seeing in them the sort of the, the most primitive emergence of this ability, right? The, the, mm. the beginnings of metacognition and being able to think about this thing, whereas ours is very sophisticated. But as you say, on the exams, they're not really set up uh, to, to measure it or really to use it in almost any degree. Uh, which is a problem because why wouldn't you use one of your best abilities uh, when you're when you're doing something that's important to you? Uh, so yeah, what we wanted to set up was a situation where they could use it in some capacity. Obviously, you can't give them the direct uncertainty response, like you said, because it's we could, but it's very difficult to think about how you would score that hmm. because if you just skipped all the the hard questions, then everyone would just get a hundred on the exam, and that would be kind of a, I mean maybe it'd be good because then hey, we taught them how to use this <laughs> ability, but it also would be difficult to grade people and do things. Um, it's just, you know, school is not set up like that. And so we try to give them somewhat the equivalent of it where they can, um, instead of skipping the answers, they can at least know, guess how well they were going to do. Um, and the monkeys too have done some paradigms where they bet high and low after the fact. Um, some colleagues of mine have done that and they're, they're good at that too. And they can guess whether they're going to, um, basically guess whether they're going to get the next, get the response they just made correct or incorrect. And okay. so it's kind of a similar equivalent thing, but, uh, now we're putting it, actually giving the humans the ability to do it, which is, which you'd think we would just always do. But, you know. Yeah. Well, I imagine there are a lot of real life situations where we do have this option and we take it. Like, I guess the one that popped in my head was if you're playing poker and, mm -hmm. you know, if you think that like, your hand is amazingly good or amazingly bad, you know exactly what to do. But if you're not sure, you still can take the option to fold. We just don't have that option right. in academic tests. <laughs> I suppose like right. it's not set up to be an option. Right. But you have... But as I said, somewhat of an equivalent of it, where if you know that you you should fold on that question, you know that it's going to be bad. You can, if you mark that down, and then later you can come back to it and sort of say, "Oh, maybe I need to give this one a little bit more time, or think mm -hmm. about it a little bit more in a, in a more you know dedicated way." Whereas you don't want to waste your time doing that on the questions that you're sure about. And so it's it's kind of nice to be able to do that. And but again, the exams aren't set up that way. You're right, and so it sort of tricks you because when you're done with the exam, you go, "Ah, oh, well." I could go back and review everything and try to remember how confident I was because I didn't keep track of it, or I could just turn the thing in and go home, and that's you know often more appealing. And so it's better if you have this guide to uh, to go with to sort of stick with you, and then you can use that, and it makes it easier to revise and figure out which which items you should revise, which items you should stick on, rather right. than trying to go into it blank, and then it's a whole lot of mental effort and it's too hard. Yeah, exactly. So, um, what are the next forays into your research that you're looking to? to start doing uh so we have we've started to do some things uh with kind of what you mentioned keeping track of your thoughts and and noticing when you're uncertain from time to time we've been a student of mine is training people to to do that basically and just independent of, of testing just training people to, to do good at this kind of this kind of thing of monitoring yourself and thinking about what's going on in your in your mind and then we want to see if that improves people's metacognition in exams and see if it improves their performance and all that kind of thing 
Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Hopefully it'll be kind of kind of interesting. Okay. And then we're doing some direct performance tests where um, in the paper I did, it's pretty clear that people are getting a performance boost from this from this thing. But we haven't done a direct controlled experiment where one group uses these procedures and one group doesn't, and then we see exactly what the what the difference is between them. And okay. that's a very it's a very hard thing to do because you either have to do it two different classes and whenever you do between groups things in psychology there could be little variations between the groups and that could throw it off and this is a you know a few answers on a test is very important but it's objectively not a huge effect and so you gotta to be careful there or you can do it within subjects meaning like one group does it and then the same group does it later like once with the the ratings and once without but then that's a problem too because then they either already know about the rating thing and maybe they'll just use it anyway right um, or that or they don't and then it's the second exam and they might be better from the next exam so it's all kinds of lots of complicated things with error variance and everything. But we do think it's so far we found that it's been improving people's um, scores a little bit. So hopefully well, it'll be a, a nice little thing there for people. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested to find out what your uh, further research findings bring up. And I know that personally, at least metacognition and, and recording my thoughts in the moment has helped me make better decisions in the long term. Um, a good example is I did an internship at a big corporation during my summer after my sophomore year and I journaled every day yeah and yeah. sometimes like being self-employed it can get stressful and I'll catch myself thinking man it would be so much better to just go back to my old job but then I go read the journals and I'm like no <laughs> I was much unhappier back then right right it's just yeah, it's, it's just hard to remember how bias. unhappy you were <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's kind of a nostalgia bias kind of thing where it mm. seems like things are better in the past and again you knew perfectly well back then that it was bad or something but you didn't record it and then you forget all that kind of stuff. We usually memory is very, you know, fallible. You only remember a very small amount of information from the past. Mm. And so you go, yeah, you think, oh, it was just so great back then or so simple or, or something like that. And of course it wasn't. And it's true <laughs> of all the, all the, you know, everything in the past. You say, oh, times were simpler when I was a kid or times were simpler in the 50s or something. Of course they weren't. Um, but you think that because, you know, you only are glossing over just the very simple, you know, oh, this is kind of what life is like. You're not thinking about the day-to-day experience. And so, yeah, if you record it, it can be a very useful thing uh, to do. And that's sort of like what yeah, what mindfulness is and where you're trying to keep – sometimes we do that exact thing with journals and keep have mm-hmm. people keep track of things. Because often guess... the, uh, it's kind of the problem with consciousness, which is the story that you tell yourself every day is not actually what it was like to be there in the moment. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a simple, very thin <laughs> string of words that comes along later. And it's, you know, it kind of roughly describes what you did and it can be useful socially to tell people about, but it's not anywhere near the full rich experience of what it was like to be there, which is often filled with, you know, happiness and sadness and ambiguity and all kinds of stuff. And you just very simply gloss over that when you're telling people your story. Yeah. I guess memory is like looking at a postage stamp from 10 feet away. Right. Right. Daily experience is like looking at a giant painting right up close. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just, it's so much richer and bigger in the moment and... You just, it's just like a, a weird thing that your mind does. It only remembers that little thin string of it. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So this has been really eye-opening, and I'm going to link to your, your article in the show notes for this episode. But to recap, what are some of the things that students can take from this to improve their own performance? Uh, yeah, so I guess, first of all, don't base your estimates on, you know, at the end of the exam, how well you did, because that's probably, even though it feels like it's right, and it feels like it's a good thing, that's probably not a very good uh Um, reflection of how well you actually did. Instead, when you're actually doing it, it's not very hard to just go through every question and rate one through five, just a quick little thing in the margin, how confident you are. are. So one being low confidence, five being high confidence. Um, And 
if you go through and do that and then circle your original answer so you can keep track of what you did. And then when you go back and you are choosing to change your answers or stick with your original answers uh, or anything, use those ratings to guide you. So trust that you, you knew in the moment what it was, even though when you go back, it might seem like, oh yeah, well, I've picked that one. And so that's probably correct. If, if you have it rated as low confidence, think about changing it. Now you probably, it's probably a good guy there. And it's probably a very accurate predictor. of If it's a low rating, it probably is not uh, correct. Mm. And so if it's a high rating, it probably was correct. And so again, it's not a hundred percent, but it's pretty, pretty good predictor. Um, so try to do that. And it's a fairly simple thing to do, but it should make uh, a little bit of a difference in terms of getting a couple more questions correct and, and, you know, not getting a couple extra questions wrong that you might otherwise uh, choose not to change. And that hopefully will, will help out a little bit when you're taking exams. Cool. And uh, one last question, because I know personally I used to go through and double check my answers like every 10 questions or so instead mm-hmm. of waiting till the entire exam was over. So do you have an opinion on that? Well, I guess it depends on how long the test is. Mm. Um, so if it's it might be good to do that in breaks if it's if it's a very long test, but usually if it's, I mean, I don't know, if it's 40 or 50 multiple choice questions or something, that usually doesn't take too long to just go through it all. The only thing I would worry about that with what you're saying is you might get just more mentally exhausted if you if you have to do 10 questions and then kind of check mm-hmm. them and then do 10 more and then check them if there's 100 questions or something. <laughs> I mean, it just, I'd be exhausted by the end of that. I mean, it could, I'm not, not saying it's a terrible thing to do or anything. I don't really know. There's no, I don't think there's any real uh, research on it. But I think if you, one of the nice things about doing that in terms of like the rating system is you almost don't have to do that because if you do them all and then you go back through the test, there might only be, you know, 10 or 15 Mm. or something that you rated very low and you want to actually look at. And then the other ones you can just skip over and not have to, you know, you don't even have to reread them and try to remember what you did. You just, oh, that's rated a five. Just forget about it. Right. Right. I wonder if taking that that small pause to rate your answer would also cut down on the uh frequency of just like what i like to call stupid mistakes like you <laughs> marked the wrong one or you just reread the, like you read the question wrong because i guess right, if you're right, making yeah. a judgment about your confidence right then and there you might be more likely to look over your answer and just double check it correctly that's true it might actually make you process it for just that extra second to make sure that you're um and that's actually another thing that sometimes people don't do this but if you have a scantron sheet and a paper form sometimes people don't write them on both and so it's very easy to mess mm. up the bubble on the Scantron form because it's just, you know, context, no context, little bubble um, that you could easily miss. And so if you're circling them on a real paper, you can double check that, too. And yeah, that's definitely. just a, a nice thing that everyone should do, I think, it's, no matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exa- I, I always get mad at the, the test where you can't write on the paper. Oh, do they have those? That's, that's <laughs> uh, we had nice. a lot of tests when yeah. I was in college where you couldn't write on the test. It's just the Scantron. So oh. I would just like I would touch my pencil to the letter and then touch it to the scantron letter just so i like could make that association since i wasn't right. allowed to mark it down on the test yeah that's too bad they should let you use the uh <laughs> if they're just trying to save paper or something yeah they want to reuse them just make a lot of sense yeah mm-hmm. what if someone writes on it anyway and then they, how are they going to check exactly <laughs> <laughs> well justin thanks so much for coming to the show this has been awesome and i can't wait to get it out to the listeners yeah great this is it's been very interesting so thanks for having mm-hmm. me yeah no problem All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the end of this conversation. Hopefully you learned something new that you can use to become a better test taker. And once again, if you want to read Justin's paper or find ways to rate and review the show, you can go to CIGpodcast.com and find the episode 78 link on the page. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find my favorite resources for making your college experience a better one, you can find those over at collegeinfogeek.com slash resources. And I will see you next week. Stay cute.